Hi everyone and welcome to The House Podcast, our innovative exploration of the humanities beyond the curriculum. I'm Jess. And I'm Susanna. And we are back after Mark It's so good to be able to say that um, from one mental breakdown to, to another. another. Because today we're going to be focusing on absurdism, which is sort of an outlet from existentialism. And we're going to be focusing on The Myth of Sisyphus, which is an essay published by Albert Camus. And then underpinning that, we have The Outsider for our lovely literature fans, okay me, um, also by Albert Camus, which is an absurdist piece. So we thought we'd begin by having a look at um, Albert Camus' background. So he was born in 1913 in Algeria and he died in 1960 in France. And it's quite interesting Camus because his death almost encapsulates the novel in a way, where he dies in a car crash and absurdism is kind of looking at this kind of irrationality of the world. And I feel like Camus, unfortunately, the universe really just did him dirty there, didn't it? Yeah, I also heard that he really hated going on car journeys, so I guess that little instinct um, was rational in a sense. Yeah. So Camus had quite an interesting upbringing. Um, before his first birthday, his father died during World War One, and that meant that he kind of moved with his mother and his brother and he lived with his grandparents. Um, and in Algeria, and they moved to Algiers, which is kind of like this urban centre. And so that's kind of where he started to build his literature ideas. He was very much exposed to the countryside, and he brings that into some of his early essays and writings, which he explores. He did get into sport, but um, his health declined quite rapidly during the 1930s, where he suffered tuberculosis. And that was a part of the reason why he wasn't able to fight in World War II, but he, he did get involved in other ways. He worked for the resistance newspapers. Those of you might know that things like places like France were under Nazi occupation at some points during World War II, and so that was his way of contributing. And I think very much the mentality of the Nazi invasions I suppose into into parts of Europe very much prompted both the existentialist movement in terms of is life meaningless, how do we find meaning, and then from that we see Camus' kind of emergence where he almost brings out absurdity in response to existentialists and kind of gives a different proposition on it that we'll have a look at in a bit. Um, some of you may know he did marry Simone de Beauvoir, which is of course. very nice, very nice little thing about him as well. And in 1957, he received the Nobel Prize for Literature, so he was very accomplished. And I feel like his ideas have only really gained more and more acclaim as time has gone on as well. Yeah. We're going to start with sort of gathering our ideas that we got from the myth of Sisyphus and then afterwards we'll focus on the outsider. But the myth of Sisyphus itself is designed to designed as a conversation whether suicide is worth it or not. And sort of through that, Albert Camus explains the meaning of life through the lens of absurdism and also the worry about death that we have as the only thing that limits us. And you might think because it is an offshoot of existentialism and even though we did cover how existentialism itself is quite a hopeful theory, absurdism is as well because of the freedom that we get from it. But um, I think the main thing that we can talk about is what the absurd is, yeah. which is quite a big concept, but it's simple when you get your head around it. And so, from what I understood, Camus kind of sees the absurd as our inability to reconcile our human desire for reason and to understand every aspect of the world and why things happen and to give justifications to why things happen with the universe, which is in itself irrational. If you think about the fact that we still don't understand like black holes, parts of space, that yeah. kind of our, our human desire, our curiosity to understand exactly what's going on, but the fact that the U.S. isn't always willing to give up reasons for why things are happening. Yeah, and through that, through the 
lack of understanding that we have for the universe, we also, um, in Camus' eyes, we invent religion for ourselves. So the concept of God and religion is very much refuted throughout the outsider and the yeah. myth of Sisyphus. But to Camus, it's quite interesting because he believes that we should live in the moment because we're all going to die. Great, fantastic. Exactly. He talks about us all being united exactly. in that kind of long slog towards the end and how life is futile, but we're all together in that kind yeah. of race to the finish. And we can see how, in his opinion, people who live to, for example, to worship or to get into the afterlife or to get into heaven are actually just completely disregarding the actual meaning of life as you don't know what happens after death. And so you should focus on the quantity as opposed to the quality of experiences that we have now. So we shouldn't look forward to heaven. We should sort of find enjoyment and meaning in what there is now. Exactly. And that's kind of like what he talks about. He talks about these three consequences of the absurd and how it introduces this problem of suicide and how we can respond to the absurd in three ways. And the first way is to literally commit suicide. But he says that's not really responding to the meaning of life because in some ways you're almost saying, well, I can't find reason, so I'm going to do something unreasonable Mm. or unreasonable, sorry, and kind of end, kill yourself. Um, For, as you just explained, you then have the second option, which is religion. And that's kind of, he he talks about almost being philosophical suicide because you deny your own mental capacities to try and find reason in the world or try and find yeah. meaning in pursuit of a set of beliefs or doctrines which tell you how to live your life. And that in many ways isn't really the liberty that the yeah. meaning of life or your own ability to find that meaning to life is supposed to yeah. give to you. And the third reason he talks about is that we revolt. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> I really like that. You can tell there's a bit of a, a, bit of a little, little link to the French. Of course. I don't know there. They, they do like to protest. And so he says, well, we can't evade death. We have to kind of embrace it almost and embrace the present moment and kind of live it, as you said, every moment to the fullest and enjoy that. Because at the end of the day, if we're all going to die eventually, we can't keep placing value on this uncertain, unknowable future and whether we have one. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe there is a God out there. I don't personally believe there is, but maybe there is. And for those people that have lived their life according to those values, great. But for the people... For the sake of appreciating what we have now and the people we have now, we should live life the best we can. It's interesting as well, there's a concept that um, Camus touches on, which is hope, but as opposed to maybe more of an existentialist outlook on hoping for a meaning in life, he says that, okay, being deprived of hope is not despairing. The flames of earth are surely worth celestial perfumes, little quote. But... um, (laughs) He believes that we shouldn't have hope and we shouldn't really have hope for anything in life as we might see in The Outsider in a second. But that lack of hope and that absence of it is not in itself a sad thing. It's just you being realistic. And for example, in The Outsider, the main character is described as the man of the world. And there's very much a pragmatic and realistic focus in absurdism, for example, Uh, The quote says, completely turned towards death, taken here as the most obvious absurdity, the absurd man feels released from everything outside that passionate attention crystallising in him. So there is that sense that as opposed to hoping for something that is eternal and something that might provide your life meaning, you should actually look towards death and acknowledge it 
in your age and in your experience and because of knowing that death will come to everyone you feel more liberated and more free to actually embrace yourself and, and embrace your little projects as we might link to existentialism um, throughout life so I think in that sense there's no hope in absurdism but it's a hopeful theory so yeah. maybe that does in itself kind maybe, of portray, portray the absurdity yeah of exactly <laughs> And I think it's quite interesting how the absurd itself is described as this divorce or this unknowingness between... There's kind of this gap that exists between two things. And as humans, we can't ever breach that gap, but we kind of have to accept it and move on with it. Live in our own comforts. But at the very end, the myth of Sisyphus is obviously about the myth of Sisyphus. And even though there's only five pages at the end, imagine my dismay to go (laughs) through the whole 120 pages of this essay to only get to the five pages worth of the classics references. I didn't take classics for this. anyway. (laughs) So we get an exploration of Sisyphus himself. And I love, love, love this reference. It's so great. So you might know maybe from the Odyssey or from somewhere else. I don't actually know the thing that happens behind Sisyphus's punishment, but basically he tries to play on the gods and tries to trick them. And um, as punishment for that, he is sent to Hades or the underworld and he is condemned to push a boulder up a hill. And every time he gets up there, it rolls all the way down and it's this absurd, futile attempt to get the boulder up basically and to Camus Sisyphus is the absurd hero exactly and so the absurd hero is something that we should take almost inspiration from because Sisyphus he sees his task every day and he continues to do it and that's very much what our lives and ourselves are like because we know that at the end we will all die that's something that's we're all promised death at the end but at the end of the day we have to kind of revolt against that notion that death is going to come to us all and to live each moment to the fullest and can we kind of end it quite hopefully where he says oh i love this quote i know what you're gonna find yeah he says to us the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart one must imagine sisyphus happy (laughs) i thought that was really lovely (laughs) and that is true because we find I mean, it's such a cliche thing to say, but we find joy in the journey, not the destination. And that's very much what Camus is trying to get at, because we can't guarantee that this destination is going to be the afterlife, because we just, we don't know if it's really there. And so we have to partake in those moments and those experiences while we're here on Earth and enjoy the people we're with. And I think that's one of the beauty about Azerty as well, is that if we accept that we're all going to die, it's that shared struggle. And that means that I can connect with you better, because I understand we're all, we're all going through the same thing. And it's not only just saying to live for the present, it's to live for yourself and to live for other people because we're all in this together. And I think that's very, I think particularly if you consider the time, what this play, I think he was writing the essay and both the novel in 1942, so quite a dark time, I suppose, during the world wars and that kind of, that kind of universality of the human condition, that our shared human nature, our shared condemnation. I get you. I think we can find hope in that and strength. Interestingly as well, there's this one quote that intrigued me. So, yes, man is his own end and he is his only end. If he aims to be something, it is in this life. And this was very reminiscent to me of um, the second formulation of the categorical imperative, which is that we are ends in ourselves. But I think this is quite different in a sense that we should yeah, strive for what we want in our own lives. And it's an interesting exploration of telos and purpose. And it definitely contrasts 
religion or natural law. And yeah, it's interesting to see that sort of hopeful look at it. It's interesting as well because Kibu, he, when he writes about himself, he doesn't talk about necessarily being an atheist either, but he doesn't necessarily mm. just seem as a Christian too. And one thing that when I was researching him, he has this kind of concept of like our human nature. Right, yes. So he believed that we're all born with a shared human nature that bonds us to the common goal of seeking out meaning in the world. And I think, I thought that was quite nice. I think how he kind of reconciles perhaps, maybe we're not necessarily created by a God, but there is something that unites us. And I think that was quite hopeful. And perhaps contrast these essentialists, where I feel like it's very much you're on your own independent journey. I think Camus tries to find that reconciliation in between both the world and each other. Yeah. There's another part of the myth of Sisyphus, which was really interesting. When he pushes the boulder up and it goes down, there's this moment of consciousness that Camus describes, and it's looking upon your life. And this, that's when you fully are conscious of the fact that you are an absurd person or, well, the absurd man, that you acknowledge the absurd and you see how trivial it all is, but you still keep going. And I guess that's very much reflected through the end of The Outsider, which yeah. we will see in a second. But Yeah, um, and just as quickly before, before we end on what you said, I think that's kind of, he talks about this lucidity and this kind of consciousness and this awakening. And I think that's quite interesting as well, because I feel like we often, perhaps Camus almost trying to say that living your life towards religion or something like that is almost kind of being unconscious and being sleeping, whereas like yeah. lucid, you're kind of taking control. And I suppose if you think about lucid dreaming, it's that power to decide, carve out your own path. Again. I like that, Kavu. Yeah. yeah, there's that freedom and that liberation involved in that. So, shall we move on to? Yeah, the stranger. So, now we're going to have a look at the stranger or the outsider, the depending outside. on edition. Yeah. So, um, this text is translated from French. And so, that does mean to some degree our analysis might be a little bit flawed, but yeah, flawed. But we, I think the translator got the best meaning. And so, Camus said when he was writing, he wanted to kind of explore this nakedness of man faced with the absurd. And that very much comes through in the text. It's written in 1942, so at the same time as essay, and so there's very much a coherence between what he's writing in The Stranger and parallels with Mrs. with uh, Mrs. Sisyphus. So I feel like we should go through a quick run of the plots. Okay, we'll start with the first line. Yeah. <laughs> so, quite infamous. Mother died today, or maybe yesterday. I don't know. So we start the book with the main character, Mersol. Can't Mersol. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and he is told that his mother, who he has put in a retirement or elderly home, has died. And he makes the journey to that home to spend a night of vigil. And then he has a funeral afterwards. And it's quite interesting as well, the fact that he doesn't really know exactly when it's happened. And I think that kind of ambiguity very much captures the whole essence of the book, which is looking at this almost irrational character in the way that society can't quite place a reason on him. And that's essentially what the whole book kind of has that absurdity where we can't understand this man and why he does certain things and society tries to infringe reason upon him. Yeah. Equally, I think from the start, it's debatable if he's a likeable character or not. I quite I, like him personally. I liked him. Right? I, I liked him more as the book went on. Yeah. He some stuff I didn't agree with. But. Yeah, of course. We'll get to that. But there's quite a theme and a motif of mm. indifference as well so I have a few quotes like it really didn't matter it was all or nothing I felt a bit lost I wondered what to do with myself I said I didn't mind he seemed pleased there was that sort of 
he feels a lack of meaning and a lack of purpose to everything he does. And I suppose while reading through that, the streets of Algiers are really described as quite listful and there's not much of a poignancy in language there, which is quite funny because the sentences are quite short as opposed to the myth of Sisyphus, which is very wordy. <laughs> Hated get through, getting through it, but we did. And yeah, I thought that was quite interesting as well because when he does have this kind of indifferent attitude to life, it's also very much towards people. We'll see later when he has relationships. He kind of questions what love is. He says, oh, it doesn't really matter that much. And I think particularly at the funeral home, so when he's gone to visit his mother's body, he starts having, um, he starts smoking a cigarette and he has a cafe or lait, <laughs> yeah. which is just coffee with milk. And he's very much condemned later in the book for just doing those regular things and having those kind of everyday pleasures. And it kind of brings up that question like, are we supposed to respond to life in certain ways that are pre-prescribed by society? Yeah. And is so to some degree that absurd here in the way that he carves out his own meaning and decides whether or not he wants to grieve and wants to feel those emotions that society tells us we should feel. And also, how do we grieve? Exactly. It's not a universalised reaction. So a lot of the things that um, Masol is condemned for is for this unusual reaction to his mother's death. Exactly. For example, and I found this so amazing <laughs> at the end, and I've told Jess a million times, but you think, why is he drinking this coffee? Why is he having a cigarette? Or why is he asking um, the, the nurse there what prisoners do or something like that? It all comes together <laughs> in the end. It's so crazy. But moving on. So should we run through some of the stuff Marcel gets up to? Yep. So after the funeral, he's very much treated as a, very much like an outsider by these community who are quite shocked by the way he doesn't seem to respond in the same way they would to the death. So he has this friend Raymond, and Raymond is not really friends with him either. He no, just sort exactly. of agrees to be friends with him. So Raymond, he's kind of described as almost like a pimp, and <laughs> for lack of a better word, he's a warehouse man. But at the end, you yes. find out what that actually means. Um, and so. Um, Raymond has this girl and he decides to go and he wants he wants to torture her and so he gets Merceau to help him write a letter to try and make her feel remorseful for having done Raymond wrong. And what ends up happening is Raymond starts to quite like violently beat up this, this yeah. poor woman. And this policeman comes and Raymond is very, very much, he's not very respectful to him either. And Merceau, he's almost, he's very detached from the entire situation. He doesn't really seem to process this, is, this isn't good. And he also gets involved with this woman, Marie. Yeah. And he and Marie, they go swimming. He's very much in love with her. They have these physical moments together. And Marie seems very invested in him emotionally. She says, would you want to marry me? And he says... It doesn't he, really matter. Yeah, he says, it doesn't really matter. He says, if you want to, we'll do it. And even as Mosu is gradually condemned, Marie really stays by him the entire time. And it's quite frustrating, I think, for Marie just to see that loyalty from one human not reciprocated by the other. But at the same time, we also have to bear in mind with Mousseau that he is so detached and out of the... He's so detached from society and that both reaps and benefits in the way that he can analyse the absurdity of our condition, but at the same time makes him very unlikable yeah. for the readers. And it's also really interesting how, of course, Camus was married to the feminist icon herself. And from a feminist lens... From a feminist lens, what's going on, Raymond? What's crazy. going on? Because not only is Marie just sort of seen as... She, like, she becomes an object for its pleasure. And she's yeah. very much... She's sidelined. She's, she's undermined just she's for seen, the sake of it. Exactly. She's used for sexual purposes. And that's kind of it, really. Yeah. That and then with Raymond, obviously... <laughs> Whoa! And... Yeah, and 
the the his girlfriend or partner is treated very much as promiscuous as having cheated on him awful awful things i think one thing i always found quite interesting is it's a small moment but one of the other people that um so lives with and he's his apartment building is trying to say salamano yes and his, i love his him dog. so much it's like yes it's very mangy dog and he's very he's abusive towards it but interesting one night his dog runs away and he's gone and I thought that was such an interesting juxtaposition and I'll just read you the quote where he says Don't you understand, they'll do away with him, the police I mean It's not like anyone will take, in, take him in and look after him with all those scabs he puts everybody off So we see this deep down he does care but then at the same time he says Is it likely I'd give money for a mutt like that? No damned fear They can kill him for all I care And I thought that was so interesting just as a social comment as well because there were some brief moments where um, you saw Camus involved with like, the Socialist Party and the kind of ideas of how does money and society in itself corrupt our ability to have meaningful human relations? Mm-hmm. And I think Salamano, he, he always walks his dog at the same time per day. And I thought that very much reminded me of this like mm-hmm. Sisyphean existence. Exactly. And it's kind of repetitive and you do it anyway. And there's some hatred towards that. But once we lose those moments and we lose that, uh, that freedom, that liberty to spend time with your dog and how that, we, we, we mourn that at yeah. the same time. I think the dog can also be seen as a metaphor for the absurd or death itself. I mean, we see with its mangy outlook and how old it is and how Salamano got it when his wife died. Yeah. And again, that juxtaposition, we can very much see the divorce that absurdism is about and it's the constant death that follows us and without it we aren't really free we're just sort of yeah the whole prospect of absurdism being that death limits you but also liberates you at the same time and it's interesting as well how when salamano goes to find his dog i told him that they kept dogs at the pound for three days for their owners to collect them and that after they dealt with them as they saw fit for some reason i thought of mother and it's really interesting because at the start, when Musso is going to the funeral, it's said that they keep vigil or before the funeral, they keep the bodies for three days. Yeah. I found that such a good parallel. parallel. Yeah. And also, I mean, he sort of ruined it by saying, I've thought of mother because, yeah, okay, <laughs> I know what you're trying to say. You don't have to feed it to me. But it's very interesting how... In spite of death being such a bad thing, without it, we are sort of lost and we hate it, but we have to keep a hold of it and we have to keep a hold of it to be conscious of that work that we are doing and the work that Sisyphus is also doing. And I found this really sweet, but when at the end of one of the chapters, Salamano says, I hope the dogs don't bark tonight. I always think it's mine. And I that made me so sad. Yeah. And it's that universality of the experience of death and the fear that exactly. we have, but we have to keep hold and we have to clutch it in order to be free. And I think I really agree with what you're saying there. And I think part of the reason why death is both li- like liberating and limiting is that it's the fact that our lives are finite is almost what gives us it's what gives the meaning in a way because like for example, when you have like a pot of ice cream or something like that, when you have like a little scoop of ice cream, you savour it so much more knowing yeah. that it's going to end. Yeah. It's quite, a, it's, it's a silly analogy, but it's the same kind of thing. And that's kind of economic principle of like, more is always better and always wanting more. 
but the fact that when we have less of something, something becomes more valuable to us and that we desire it more. And so it's kind of like that paradox of our existence. Very much absurd. It is absurd, isn't it? Um, as the text progresses though, Mousseau does something rather scandalous. Oh dear. So, um, Mousseau, so Raymond's friend, alongside his wife, invites Raymond and Mousseau <laughs> out to like a beach house and they go, and it's, it's like, like it's like yeah it's like this and it's this beach and it's stiflingly hot yeah and i feel like for me straight away i was getting red flags okay but the hell is setting okay, <laughs> yeah, okay what's going on here and so bear in mind the girlfriend that he beats up she has like family members or friends we don't really know if it's they, raymond being paranoid or not or whether it's or whether organized. it's actually organized against him mm. but he keeps thinking that they're following him <laughs> And we get to the scene at the beach, they're all having fun. Marie and Masseau go swimming, then they come back, and then they're on the beach, and suddenly there are these three people that Raymond recognises. He's like, these are the people that we saw at the bus stop. And then things go down. Exactly, so we see a knife flash, and I think, is it Raymond I guess? Yeah, Raymond gets injured, he, he gets, gets stabbed. Injured. And at one point they have a revolver and um, Raymond decides to give Masseau the revolver, which yeah. at the moment seemed like an okay decision so that Masseau could defend himself, yeah. but it reaps serious consequences later. And I think it was interesting as well that it came from Raymond, just I suppose this kind of violent figure and this kind of passing on the burden and perhaps Masseau, who we thought was initially quite harmless, mm-hmm. he does something where he's so out of body, he doesn't really seem to process it as we read it. And yeah. the, book, the book is divided um, into parts. And the first part ends with Mousseau goes back on a walk on the beach and he describes feeling extremely hot. He says, the lights seemed thudding in my head and I couldn't face the effort needed to go up the steps and make myself amiable to women. But the heat was so great that it was just as bad staying where I was under that flood of blinding light falling from the sky. And I thought that was a really interesting moment there where he starts to kind of like feel this oppressive heat. And eventually what he ends up doing um, and so with that crisp whip crap sound, it all began. I shook off my sweat and the clinging veil of light. I knew I'd shattered the balance of the day, the spacious calm of this beach in which I had been happy, but I fired four shots more into, this, into the inert body on which they left no visible trace. And each successive shot was another loud, fateful rap on the door of my undoing. Mm. And so Merceau kills a man. Yeah. Not just that, he fires his one shot and particularly in the trial that comes after, they make a big emphasis on the fact that he fires one shot and then decides to fire, fire four, four more. And so interesting as well with, I have a different translation, so it says four sharp knocks at the door of unhappiness, but there's very much a focus later on on how fleeting and changeable our lives are. So another quote is, as if a familiar journey under a summer sky could as easily end in prison as in innocent sleep. And I guess that sort of links into absurdism in the sense that we don't have control over our own lives and no, exactly. death can happen at any time, Anytime. as <laughs> Camus found out. But um, the fact that we judge ourselves for things that we can't control and we go through life thinking that there's going to be a purpose, but in reality, we have to find it ourselves through the things that are thrust at us. So that's interesting. But then we go on to part two, where Masseau is in prison. And he's on trial. And that's where Camus' second idea comes in, where he says the opposite of the absurd man is the man condemned to death. And that's kind of different as well. Whereas when you're free, death is certainly within your periphery, something you're always conscious of and approaching, but you live out life to evade it. Whereas when you're condemned to death, it's already caught you and you're kind of trapped in that grass and those waiting moments and how can you find value in your life when you're not really liberated and free to live it as you want yeah interestingly enough there's the chaplain which 
who allows us to go more in depth into what Camus thought about religion. And he very much argues with Mousseau throughout the whole of part two. Well, he appears like a few times. A few times, yeah. But for example, there's this quote. He told me that it was impossible that all men believed in God, even those who wouldn't face up to him. That was his belief. And if he should ever doubt it, his life would become meaningless. Do you want my life to be meaningless? He cried. As far as I was concerned, it had nothing to do with me. And I told him so. But across the table, he was already thrusting the crucifix under my nose and exclaiming quite unreasonably. I am a Christian. I ask him to forgive your sins. How can you not believe that he suffered for your sake? And there's, again, there's that reflection of what Camus thinks about religion and that it is an emblem of hope that we should just disregard because it is something that doesn't allow us to live in the moment but focuses on something that, that to him does not respond to us and is just an abstract notion that makes us feel better. Exactly. And just to develop on that, I think... Religion in a way can be quite misleading in terms of it gives you values rather than letting you find your own values. And I think one thing just to add to what Zuzu said, I really liked was he talked about, he told me he believed, when he says, um, he told me he believes in God and even that, that even the worst of sinners could obtain forgiveness of him. But first he must repent and become like a little child with a simple trustful heart open to conviction. I thought that was quite interesting there with like this kind of parallel of being religious and being childish because when Camus talks about philosophical suicide in the myth of Sisyphus, he kind of aligns that with religion and how perhaps in religion we, it's almost time in terms of, I suppose, with power, like this patriarchal power where you give someone else the power to decide how you should live your life and to look after you. You take away your own responsibility and your own agency to decide how you want to live your life. And as we expose, particularly in the context of the Catholic Church, which condemns things like homosexuality, it's very difficult to find meaning in life and particularly in terms of human connections if you have these religious beliefs which indoctrinate you and tell you that that kind of connection is wrong yeah. and how religion in a way whilst it can be excellent in terms of providing morality and community in society it can also condemn us to beliefs or attitudes which restrict us rather than liberate us to live our lives and connections most meaningfully alongside that we exchange reality for religion so like for example there's this great um he couldn't even be sure he was alive because he was living like a dead man i might seem to be empty-handed but i was sure of myself sure of everything surer than he was sure of my life and sure of the death that was coming to me yes that was all i had but at least it was a truth which i held just as it had hold of me I'd been right, I was still right, I was always right. And there's that certainty in that atheism of Mousseau. But I guess it has some truth in it that we shouldn't misinterpret our reality to sort of our unconscious bias towards religion. And for example, there's this scene later on in the outsider or the stranger, <laughs> um, in, later on in part two, where the chaplain just doesn't believe that he doesn't see God as he's being condemned to death and he says but deep in my heart I know that even the most wretched among you have looked at them and he's referring to the prison walls and the bricks and seen a divine face emerging from the darkness it is that face which you are being asked to see and again I think it linking just really slightly to philosophy but we see like maybe even Descartes idea of the trademark how God has stamped a clear and distinct idea of himself into us and it's our 
prerogative, like even with natural law, with the five primary precepts, one of them is to worship God. And it's our responsibility to seek God in anything that we see, like, for example, in the design argument or just in general, in aesthetics, we might look at something and think this has purpose and this is made by God for us to find God through. But in reality, you should just focus on what it, what the things around you are and what they mean to you and how you can use them to bolster your experience of life. Which is interesting. I like that. That's really interesting. Um, shall we move on to the trial? Of course. So the trial is quite interesting because it is kind of symbolic of society in a way where we place him in this courtroom and we try to attribute reasons to his irrational behaviour. And that's very much our own human condition, the way we try to give reason to this unreasonable universe. And we see that play out. And so there's journalists there present at Mosul's trial and he's very much condemned and they talk about his reactions to what happens and how that kind of almost portrays him as guilty in a way. So we mentioned already that he drank his coffee at the funeral. <laughs> he had a cigarette when he was walking. Um, he was quite indifferent during the funeral. He, I can't remember if he slept through it. He slept through a bit of the vigil and they used that against him as well. And he also had his little thing with Marie a day after. Yes. Um, went to the cinema him. with her. I can't remember what movie they were watching. They but... did mention the movie, and um, but essentially, I think it was. I imagine it was something comical or like funny. Something, yeah, something out of touch after um, death. And I thought that was quite interesting. And just the way they kind of construct this narrative and this debate between him and the lawyer. Um, one thing that I really liked was when the lawyer says to him, "I accused the prisoner of behaving at his mother's funeral in a way that showed he was already a criminal at heart." And so it's kind of just going back to, I suppose, this notion of the soul and like, are we born criminals? like from birth or and I think that's kind of different with Camus concept of this shared human nature um existentialists which Camus kind of responds to believe that we're all just these blank slates and that you your existence precedes your essence so you kind of decide what you want to be as you go through life and that you're given total liberty and freedom to do that whereas perhaps here Camus almost sees some argument that perhaps we are born in certain ways or we at least have this shared human experience of this meaningless of my of this lack of meaning in life <laughs> and our desire to find reason and very much we see that present here with the lawyer who tries to find reason for what Nosso has done and there is a little bit of a plot twist mm. um, during the trial interesting I'm gonna link to existentialism really quickly yes of course but I found it really strange because Camus very much emphasises how different absurdism is from existentialism, but there is this shared theme of judgment and justice that we had in No Exit when people when um, people looked at each other to see themselves. Yeah. Like, for example, for a moment I had the ridiculous impression that they were there to judge me, or I was in a tram and this is describing the jury, and all these anonymous passengers on the opposite seat were scrutinising the new arrival to find his peculiarities. And I think there's very much this joint theme of how we find ourselves through each other. Which I found interesting, but obviously he does make the point of how absurdism is very much different from existentialism. But the plot twist is... So, the plot twist, and this was particularly striking for Jess, is <laughs> My that... My was blown. I know. So, before that... So, there's the trial, and the next day, or I think the trial after something like that it's, it's is... A, it's a parasite, which... 
essentially means a son murders his father. Yeah. And he, so he says, you have the quote, so I won't say it. So this is from the lawyer. He says, this man who is morally guilty of his mother's death is no less unfit to have a place in the community than that other man who did to death the father that, that begat him. And indeed, the one crime led, led on to the other. The first of these two criminals, the man in the dock, set a precedent, if I may put it so, and authorised the second crime. Yes, gentlemen, I am convinced, here he raised his voice at home, that you will not find I am exaggerating the case against the prisoner when I say that he is also guilty of the murder to be tried tomorrow in this court, and I look to you for a verdict accordingly. <gasps> Whoa! <laughs> Basically, it's that theme of justice and how how do we condemn other people to death? How do we find people who are guilty? Because there's this quote in The Myth of Sisyphus, which I found really peculiar. I don't think I understood it very well, but it's that the absurd man doesn't see guilt, but he sees responsibility, which is interesting. And how, particularly with Mousseau, he isn't inherently guilty but exactly. he did do the act so do we differentiate intention from action do we exactly and i thought there was this dichotomy as well between guilt and shame because i feel like shame is something that you feel when you feel that you've wronged society whereas guilt is something that i feel when you feel you've wronged your own morals but with most he doesn't seem to have these clear morals mm. and so how can he feel guilt when he hasn't prescribed his own values or code to live by and i think perhaps that's why he's so indifferent because he's unable to find meaning in, meaning in this meaningless world. And it's, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the space of condition. And it's interesting as well that, that he's condemned to death by society in terms of crime, just kind of that constant dichotomy between capital punishment and whether it's an effective deterrent against crime. But perhaps we need to focus less on telling people that life is valuable and telling people that their own lives are valuable or to find meaning in this world. Because I think often capital punishment is kind of this residual attitude in terms of I suppose like biblical religions which emphasise that life is precious and of course it is that but at the same time I suppose murder is it really a mortal sin if we don't have this afterlife Hmm. I think it's interesting it's interesting as well there's a great quote I was made to realise that on the contrary everything was quite simple the machine is on the same level as the man who's walking towards it he goes up to it just as you would go to meet another person and he's describing the guillotine and how it's not like on a massive pedestal that you walk up. I guess you sort of imagine you, you that think, though. You think French Revolution, yeah, Mary this Antoinette. massive yeah. like, podium exactly. that you go up to, you have to trek up to, but it's literally just in the middle of whatever, the square or whatever they're doing it on. And the fact that it's on the same level as you, I think that's such an insightful peek into maybe how Camus' yeah. like criticism of capital punishment exactly. and how... How do we have the authority to condemn someone else to death if our experiences and our lives should be so valued in like their quantity? Exactly. And I love that quote so much. And you can see how, how absurd is it that we feel that we can find justice through each other, I suppose, if life in itself is meaningless. And I guess you can link that to certain things like the Amber Heard trial exactly. or whatever. But, and there's another quote as well. In a way, they seem to be conducting the case independently of me. Things were happening without me even intervening. My fate was being decided without anyone asking my opinion. It's important being the accused and I've got, to, I've got something to say. And I think just a bit of lawyer hate at the <laughs> moment. No, but I, 
it's so strange to me how the s- stories can be so misconstrued in court and how obviously lawyers are meant to you know absolve guilt or try to weave the story so it makes sense and as you said there is no rational explanation to his to his answers to things and how he responds to grief and death but it's just so strange that that we can speak for each other and we can speak for other people's experiences without fully living in them yeah and i guess in that sense there is very much a criticism of capital punishment even though Masso does reach an acceptance at the end yeah I, about. I thought that was really interesting what you said about the guillotine and the fact that it was all level and i think that's because death in a way is the ultimate level like we're all equal in death and they talks about that later where he says every man alive was privileged there was only one class of men the privileged class all alike would be condemned to die one day. His turn too would come like the others. And I think that's quite interesting why he says you're privileged to be alive. Yeah. And how perhaps we all need to kind of accept that we have this existence and we need to make the absolute most of it because it's so finite and it's so precious. And I think it's beautiful how Meso does come to reconcile with the end. Perhaps that's when he finally starts to find meaning in his existence and meaning in his world. Um, should we talk about... His, his final moments. Okay, <laughs> his final moments are so interesting because you get this even essay-like reflection on death, on the meaning of life, on happiness, on freedom, on literally everything on the very last pages of the book after speaking to the chaplain and deciding that actually seeking God is purposeless. And there's even a good quote, which I won't find because I don't think I wrote it down, but it's something like, he could have lived either 30 or 70 years and yeah. it would have still resulted in the same thing. Exactly, it would make no difference. Yeah, and no. it was the natural order of things. Or, But if you don't die now, you'll die later and the same problem will arise. How are you going to face up to that terrifying ordeal? And Masseau finally decides that he's free. He's free from the concern for death. And in that final moment when he's on the guillotine... <laughs> He decides that life is worth living and it's quite ironic, but so close to death, mother must have felt liberated and ready to live her life again. No one, no one at all had any right to cry over her and I too felt ready to live my life again. Exactly. And I think it's very much what you said about with the Mephistopheles and when he gets to the top of that hill and it's that moment when we look death in the face and we see it, that we finally become conscious and that lucid moment and that ability to revolt and only when we're really confronted with death and perhaps while we do feel pity for death and we feel pity for those that are on this dying, it's only when in that moment when we're about to die that we start to realise how great living is and how much we should really value every moment we've had. And I thought, I really like that with Mother. I think that was quite an interesting moment when he talks about his mother and how it's kind of a more hopeful view on her death. I think often death can be quite... So, so it's so we, we associate it so much with grief and a sense of loss, perhaps at the same time we must focus more on the, the what they gained in their time on earth and that kind of the richness of their existence rather than the loss of us as society. So with that <laughs> being said, I love that statement from you. So I feel Thank like it would be a nice place to close. But as per the house podcast tradition, yes. we're going to get one word that really sums up our experience of reading the myth of Sisyphus and the outsider or the stranger, depending yes. on your preference. Um, what is yours, Jess? Revolt, definitely. I just love that. I think it's so it's so empowering. And I think like often when you approach of existential or absurdist or nihilist philosophy, it can be quite 
Ooh, quite <laughs> scary and frightening. But I feel like if you kind of accept that it's your opportunity to revolt against this idea of death and to decide, you know what, I'm going to take life into my own hands and decide what I want to do. I think that's really, it's really powerful. I like it. It's interesting as well how like people say, oh, I'm having my existential crisis right now, and existentialism yeah. in itself isn't about that sort of despair no, exactly. or about that confusion. Even though the absurd is that detachment or that sense of confusion, but also clarity at the same time. Exactly. And in that sense, my word would probably be liberation because I, I just love the juxtapos. Juxtaposition <laughs> between the limitation and the freedom that death brings us, and honestly, reading it, I was I enlightened? Yes, perhaps. <laughs> Will I be worried about death? No more. No, but uh, yeah, I loved it, and I loved reading this. And next time we'll have to decide. But we're thinking about doing um. Something by Sylvia Plath, the bell jar. Bell jar. We do like bell jar. We thought it'd be a nice reconciliation of what we learned about existentialism and okay. absurdity. As Plath, obviously, she died quite tragically, but she definitely confronts that in her book. And I feel like we were both. Now we have a very thorough understanding exactly. of the motives behind suicide. I feel like we could find it quite well. <laughs> and we can also, after that, um, have a bit more of a study on nihilism as well and bring a bit of the Nietzsche. holy trinity yes. of existentialism perhaps not holy because all of them hate religion but you know. <laughs> our, our atheistic trinity of suicide exactly <laughs>